This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Strasbourg, France, mid-July, 1518. A local woman, some sources call her Frau Trophia, began to dance. It was, by all accounts, a beautiful sunny day. But there was no music playing, and there was no local wedding or celebration. She just randomly started to dance. And dance she did. For six days, with no rest or pause. One by one, others started to join in. By the end of the week, 30 others had joined her. Shortly after, she amassed a crowd of over a hundred people. By the end of August, the crowd of dancers had expanded to 400. No one could work out what was happening, or, more importantly, why. What they could see, however, was that the dancers were not having any fun. One source said, They danced together ceaselessly, for hours or days, and in wild delirium, the dancers collapsed and fell to the ground exhausted, groaning and sighing as if in the agonies of death. This is how Benjamin Lee Gordon described the dancing plague in his book Medieval and Renaissance Medicine. Physically exhausted, the dancers would sleep soundly, but when they awoke the next day, they were consumed by the urge to dance. This happened over and over and over. Local authorities decided it was time for action, and the best medicine was more of the disease. They determined the cause of the dancing was overheated blood, and decided the best thing was to get it out of their system by dancing more. Musicians were hired, a stage was built, and local halls were encouraged to stay open 24 hours a day. Professional dancers encouraged the afflicted to stay on their feet and dance it out. However, this all started to backfire because instead of stopping due to exhaustion, the dancers started to die. Their bodies simply couldn't maintain the frenetic movement. People were dying of strokes and heart attacks. At the height of the dancing plague, it was reported that 15 people were dying every day. Although, to be fair, accounts do differ here. One expert, John Waller, noted that records from the time of the plague didn't mention any fatalities. It's actually reports from long after the dancing craze that talk about people dying. So this may just be a case of the story getting bigger and bigger over time. But one thing that everyone does agree is not exaggerated is the fact that these people were dancing. Waller said, People were not just trembling, shaking, or convulsing. Although they were entranced, their arms and legs were moving as if they were purposefully dancing. Waller also noted that the records of the time say the people expressed fear and desperation. The other thing everyone agrees on is that they did not want to be dancing. So why would a group of 400 people suddenly start dancing and then be unable to stop? A couple of reasons have been hypothesized. Some people have surmised that this was a religious ritual, or a rite. But the simple fact that the dancers were unwilling participants probably negates this theory. A second theory was that this was caused by food poisoning. Strasbourg was a farming community. There was a mold called ergot that can grow on damp rye. 
This mold is a not-too-distant cousin of LSD. Actually, LSD is a man-made version of a compound found in the ergot. When ergot is baked into bread along with a rye, the person who eats it can experience hallucinations, seizures, and spasms. However, experts say that the effects of ergot skew more toward visions and delusions rather than energy and coordinated dancing. So, this theory is also likely not the reason for the dancing plague. Which brings us to the third and most accepted theory. The dancing was a mass psychogenic illness. In other words, mass hysteria. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. We often throw the words mass hysteria around to describe anything that involves a large group of people getting worked up and emotional. For example, Beatlemania is often described as mass hysteria because parents couldn't understand why their kids were going crazy, screaming, and crying over four mod lads from Liverpool. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Not to get too technical here, but the medical definition of mass hysteria is much more precise. Professionals prefer the term collective obsessional behavior. It's a condition that starts in the mind, but then manifests in physical symptoms. In other words, you have a psychological stress or threat that produces a physical response, and it happens to a large group of people. So let's get back to the dancers in Strasbourg. Their lives were exceptionally bad in the early 1500s. They had just experienced a series of famines. Their winters had been brutal and their summers incredibly hot. They had strange weather patterns as well, with recorded hailstorms and sudden frost. Malnutrition and death from starvation was everywhere. Disease swept through the region, including smallpox, leprosy, and a new lethal illness known as the sweating sickness. Anxiety and fear were pervasive. Near Strasbourg, in the town of Severn, was a tiny, musty shrine dedicated to St. Vitus, the patron saint of dancers. There was a local legend that if anyone angered St. Vitus, he would send down a plague of compulsive dancing. Once the local authorities saw people dying from overdancing, they took the crowd to the shrine, put red shoes on their feet, and walk them around the statue. Only then did the dancing plague stop. Today, experts believe the stress of their terrible living conditions intersected with their belief in the curse of St. Vitus. Your life is horrible. You decide that this is because you've angered God and St. Vitus, and if you've angered St. Vitus, you believe he's going to send a dancing plague. So, you are compelled to dance. Logically, it doesn't make any sense. But often, the affected have entered a trance state where logical thinking does not apply. Ironically, what probably made the dancing plague a mass event was the authorities' decision to encourage more dancing. The public dancing likely triggered more people to wonder if they angered St. Vitus, and subconsciously drove them to dance as well. Strasbourg's dancing plague was not the only one of its kind in medieval Europe. Over 300 years, there were enough outbreaks of mass dancing that the behavior was given a name, 
St. Vitus's Dance. True mass hysteria is not limited to the past. Almost 450 years later, in 1962, another mass hysteria event took place at a girls' school in Kasasa, in the African country of Tanganyika, which is now known as Tanzania. On January 31, 1962, three students started to giggle. Not out of the ordinary for teenage girls sharing a joke. You've heard the phrase, laugh and the whole world laughs with you. Over the coming days, the school experienced just how infectious laughter can be. <laughs> the giggling shared by these three girls spread rapidly throughout the student body. They were overcome with laughter that lasted anywhere from several hours to more than two weeks with no apparent cause. By the middle of March, 95 of the 159 students at the school were affected. For some reason, the teachers were not. As the laughter spread, students were unable to focus. The situation became so unmanageable that the school was forced to temporarily close. But if school administrators thought that that would solve the problem, they were very wrong. As the students were sent home, the phenomenon spread to other villages. In the village of Nshamba, over 200 mostly young people were affected in April and May. Not long after, almost 50 girls at another school caught the laughter bug and it continued to spread from there. The mysterious disease that hit students at the Staraha Girls Center is a case of mass hysteria, according to the Ministry of Health. More than 50 students were isolated after displaying high-pitched cuffs, vigorous in some cases. In the end, about 1,000 people in Tanzania and Uganda were affected, with a total of 14 schools closing. Accounts differ on how long the epidemic lasted. Some claim it was six months, while others say it was as long as two and a half years. This mass event has been called the Tanganyika Laughter Epidemic, which makes it sound rather fun. However, it was anything but. First, you might be imagining a joyous, genuine laugh that lasts for months on end. Unfortunately, that's not the case. It was episodic laughter in short bursts that kept happening. From the descriptions, it sounds like it was a hiccup a spasm that affected people involuntarily. Also, the symptoms were far wider ranging than just laughter. Loss of consciousness, restlessness, crying, rashes, respiratory problems, and even screaming were reported. Like the dancing plague of Strasbourg, the Tanganyika laughter epidemic is considered a mass hysteria event. 1962 was a stressful year in the country. It had just won its independence. Later conversations with affected youth indicated higher expectations than before. They had a greater sense of responsibility as the future leaders of the country. They also felt a cultural shift, with a clashing of traditional and new progressive ideals. They felt there was no way for them to express their reaction in a culturally acceptable way. As the expression goes, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. It's more than likely that this is what had taken hold. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. In 1967, Singapore was at a turning point. Two years earlier, it had separated from Malaysia to become an independent state. The separation was rooted in bitter differences between the two nations. It was a stressful period, full of upheaval and racial tension. This stress may have been a contributing factor to the mass hysteria that overtook hundreds of Singaporean men who thought their penises were disappearing. The Singapore Penis Panic began in October 1967. On local farms, 55,000 pigs had been vaccinated against swine fever. Stories spread that eating the vaccinated pork would result in koro, which a Singapore Medical Journal article described as a disease characterized by the sudden delusion of penis retracting, accompanied by intense panic. <coughs> Men with koro don't actually have any physical symptoms just the perception that their manhood is retreating into their body. They believe that this will lead to death. Within days of a newspaper story reporting the link between pork and koro, the hospitals were flooded. At the height of the panic, almost 100 men were treated at the Singapore General Hospital on one day. Some attempted home remedies, tying red strings or elastic bands around their penises. Some used clothespins or chopsticks whatever it took to keep it outside their body. Taking their genitalia into their own hands, unfortunately, only caused more damage. Suffice to say, pork sales plummeted. Pork producers and the government tried to reassure the men of Singapore that the treated meat was harmless. The epidemic, however, continued to escalate. Only when the medical association went on TV and radio to assure the men that their genitalia was just fine, that no one had died, and that everything was psychological, did things finally calm down. In total, 469 cases of Koro were treated in hospitals. There was no way to determine how many other men self-treated or visited traditional Chinese doctors. Later research did prove, however, that all the men who came in for treatment of genital shrinkage had heard stories of Koro before they experienced it. Like the other examples we've discussed, the Singapore penis panic seems to have been a perfect storm of factors. The stress of the era, the cultural belief that a shrinking penis is a sign of poor health, combined with the rumors of tainted pork, created a month-long mass hysteria that led the men of Singapore to keep an eye down there. In the Middle Ages, nuns were the perfect petri dish for mass hysteria. Their living conditions made prisons seem luxurious. Many women were forced into the convent, which was full of poverty, hard work, and compliance. Women who didn't comply were often beaten, starved, or punished in other ways. This created communal fear and stress, which are the triggers of a mass psychogenic illness. In a German convent near the River Rhine in the 15th century, a nun bit her fellow sisters. 
In turn, they started biting other nuns. Soon, the convent was full of nuns biting each other. From there, it spread to other convents. A doctor of the era captured the story, writing, A nun in a German nunnery fell to biting all her companions. In the course of a short time, all the nuns of this convent began biting each other. The news of the infatuation among the nuns soon spread, and it now passed convent to convent throughout a great part of Germany, principally Saxony, and it afterwards visited the nunneries of Holland, and at last the nuns had biting mania, even as far as Rome. At first, it was assumed that the nuns were delirious due to an infection. But when they failed to show any other symptoms, church authorities turned to what they knew best. They started with special masses and prayer services. When this failed, they turned to exorcisms. When this didn't stop the biting, they tried a more rudimentary punishment. They threatened bitey nuns with flogging and submersion in water. This appeared to have the desired effect. Another mass hysteria event at a convent in France started with a nun who began meowing like a cat. At the time, cats were not the lovable stars of the internet that they are today. They were considered associates of Satan. So, a meowing nun would not be considered a good thing. According to the records, shortly after, all the nuns in the convent were meowing. It was described like a chorus of cats singing hours every day. This satanic wailing alarmed the neighborhood, and the military was eventually brought in. The nuns were threatened with whippings, and like the biting nuns, this seemed to bring the mass hysteria event to an end. These days, social media has been named a possible culprit in the spreading of mass hysteria. One of the defining characteristics of mass hysteria is that the symptoms are shared by a common group. Historically, that meant it was geographically contained. But today, thanks to the internet, our groups can be virtual and spread out around the world. In 2011, in a mass psychogenic illness in Leroy, New York, 18 people started to exhibit twitching limbs and verbal outbursts similar to the symptoms of Tourette's, which none of them had. One school, 12 teenage girls, and a very disturbing medical mystery. Uncontrollable twitches and tics developed overnight and no one knows why. One doctor says it's a stress-induced disorder, but one of the girls and her mother say no way. They want answers and they want help. And what makes the event in Leroy unique is that most of the people affected were teenage girls, plus one adult, and this adult was unconnected to the girls. She learned about the girls' symptoms through a viral video on Facebook. We have new information tonight on a medical mystery that's centered in western New York with possible connections to this area. The number of victims displaying involuntary Tourette's-like syndromes has grown. More nationally renowned experts are getting involved in this, and it's not only young girls now who are The number of students from Leroy High School in Genesee County who have now been confirmed with conversion disorder is 15. 
School officials in Leroy say they've ruled out all environmental factors, infections, and the possibility of carbon monoxide poisoning. But meanwhile, a group of parents in Leroy, which is dissatisfied with the diagnosis of mass psychogenic illness from the local doctors, has made a unanimous decision to seek the help of national experts. This may be the first case of social media spreading an actual disease. Apparently, what you see on the internet might actually affect both your mental and physical health. Is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.